The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Bruce McGregor and Chris McGregor and Mike Aquilina joining us again today. Mike, author of Mass of the Early Christians, several other books too on the early church. Now those are all published by our Sunday visitor, Mike, vice president of a place we love a lot, the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Check their website at www.salvationhistory.com. Also a Google around on the Grail Code. You'll come up with Mike and our favorite blog, fathersofthechurch.com. Mike, good morning. Welcome again to the program. Uh, Well, it's good to be back again. I'm having a good time these days with you folks. It's going to sound strange, but I really couldn't imagine anybody else I'd want to spend Ash Wednesday with than you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a nice thing. You know, St. Benedict said, one of the great fathers of the Church, Benedict said that that Lent should be a time of joy. He repeated this in his rule. Because the more we empty ourselves during Lent, the more we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we have the ashes placed on our foreheads, I mean, there is such a connectedness. I, I mean, I feel, even going back into the Old Testament, I mean, it just, there's something so rich about that whole action. There is. You know, it's it's interesting. When I we used to work um, in downtown Pittsburgh in the city, uh, I, I worked across the street from the downtown parish church. And it was interesting to see that on Ash Wednesday, they used to just have priests positioned at the church giving out ashes mm. all day long. And there would be long lines of people who were just there to get their foreheads smudged. More Catholics than you could imagine. I imagine that there were Catholics, lapsed Catholics, and uh, non-Catholics, and all sorts of people who were there because of the richness of that symbol. It always amazed me, too, as a liturgist, Mike, working in parishes where if you give people ashes or give them palms, they come out of the woodwork to pick those up. I just wish they felt that way about the Eucharist. <laughs> well, I have a priest friend who uh, who says it's just because they're getting something for nothing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we wanted to to spend this time, beginning of Lent, to talk to you, Mike, because I have always found by going to your blog, thefathersofthechurch.com, or you can just type in in a Google search, The Way of the Fathers, you have always given us a lot of substance about why we do certain things and how we can live it out today. Well, it's best for us to understand why we're doing the things. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to do them anyway, because the Church's tradition hallows them. We shouldn't demand that we understand everything perfectly before we do it, mm. right. because we're always dealing with mysteries. But it mm. is good for us to grow in our understanding, because we, we love better what we know better. Oh, well said. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us about Lent? Well, boy. <laughs> wow, there's an open form. Yeah. I could write a book. I think <laughs> you will. will. Uh, Lent, of course... Um, is, is a season of preparation for Easter, which is the greatest thing in our year, the greatest time in our year. Mm-hmm. The resurrection is the greatest thing that has ever happened. Mm-hmm. And it's the celebration that we're, we're leading up to. And we're really, during Lent, we're, we're emptying ourselves. We're clean, cleaning up the, the house to make room for that celebration, to make, to make ready for that celebration. And in the ancient Church, there, there were various periods of fasting mm-hmm. in order to prepare for Easter, and it seems that the original celebration was a complete fast, you know, no food, from Good Friday until Easter Sunday, mm-hmm. and thus the celebration of the Easter Vigil, because once you got that first glimmer of light, people were ready, were ready to eat something. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but 
the fasts throughout the, the time of the fathers um, varied in length and in, in severity, really, uh, what was demanded of people. Around the beginning of the 4th century, sometime between the year 300 and 325, the Church settled into a 40-day period of fasting, mm-hmm. imitation of Moses and Elijah and Jesus, who fasted for 40 days. So it's a modified fast. It's not a total fast, but during the period of Lent, we observe certain marks of Lent, and those are prayer and fasting and almsgiving. Those are the three traditional marks of Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And uh, the Church gives us a lot of freedom uh, today in how we're to observe those. In the ancient Church, the fast could be pretty severe, especially in the East. Mm -hmm. Um, People laid off flesh meats, fish, eggs, and dairy products. (laughs) So it was pretty complete. You were kind of limited to olive oil and lentils. Well, beans, yeah, that's about it. (laughs) Well, they call olives the meat of the ancient world, so... uh, Mm. I love olives. (laughs) I don't know if you have to... get tired of them, Bruce, after... (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, 55 years into the campaign, I'll still sit down and eat a jar. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) But that idea of fasting, especially just from food today, I mean, we have so much that... We're never. I mean, right now, people just fast from chocolate. They give up something like a food. Sure. And that's not and really the the spirit, is it? Well, it is in a sense. We should give up something. That, mm-hmm. That's a good thing, and it should be something that we'll miss because it should be there as a reminder, and it should be there to remind us that eventually we're going to lose all these things anyway. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting if you've if you've ever served by the bedside of somebody who's dying, you can see that that gradually we're stripped of everything. And there are two responses we can have to that. If we're attached to those things of this world, then we're bitter by that point, because gradually everything we love has been taken away from us. Mm -hmm. But if we live a certain Christian detachment from the things of this world, if we enjoy them just because uh, they remind us of God, they're samples of God's glory, then by that time we're fairly detached from these things, and, and we know that letting go of them, is just enabling us to embrace God all the better. And you can see the difference on the deathbed of someone who's been faithful to that that way of life all along. Well, fasting really is that training that prepares us for all of that. Because you know what? Time is is going to take it all from us. Our taste for chocolate, our loved ones, and and so many other things. So that can either embitter us or it it can draw us closer and closer and closer to God. But you ask, your question is, is about the spirit of the fast. Sure. Any giving up of something for the right reason is a good thing. We don't fast as an end in itself, but we're fasting. We're, we're giving something up in order to make room for something else. It's like cleaning out the closet at home. If you don't do that, then you don't have room for other things to go in there. So you have to do that periodically. And we need to, to clean out the closets of our lives in order to make room for God. So if it's giving up TV, if it's giving up chocolate that's going to help us do that, well, all the more. But all of the fasts, we should try to live them with a, with a special intensity. The communion fast is one that we often take for granted. Um, one of my pet peeves is seeing people, you know, walking up for communion while they're chewing gum or popping a bread. Oh, oh, that drives me crazy. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. And, and really, we do need to, to catechize better in that way. But it's not a severe fast. We're talking about one hour before the reception of Holy Communion. It's right. not even an hour before Mass that the Church asks us for. So... That one-hour fast, though, is, is just, again, so that 
we're not allowing our, our, our belly to be our God, as St. Paul put it. We're cleaning out our lives, and we're trying to focus our attention on Jesus. This is the one thing that's going to feed me right now and for all eternity. So that little fast, and then on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we go without meat, and we only have one full meal that day. Again, this isn't a severe fast. We're mm-hmm. still probably eating more than many people throughout the world will eat in that given day. But it's a little bit of a hardship for us, and we should live it as well as we can. And then, of course, all the Fridays of Lent, we're going to be going without, without meat. Most, most people will, unless they're, mm-hmm. they're dispensed for reason of age or infirmity. These are all good things, and they do, they do add up. There are lots of good reasons to do it. Jesus assumed we were going to fast. He said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. You know, they neglect their appearance that they may appear to others to be fasting. Now, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. Mm -hmm. He assumed that all of us Christians would be doing that a lot. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, we see that whenever the Apostles celebrated their public worship, they fasted before the liturgy. So we should be doing that, too. We should be doing it with a good and joyful spirit, the way, the way Benedict spoke of Lent. Let's talk about another dimension, too, of, of kind of uh, the, the fast and moving into the spiritual realm. And uh, I mean, I think uh, you hear from a lot of people, we really should try and give up or modify some of the behaviors that we kind of find ourselves falling into. You know, I'm going to fast from gossip. I'm going to fast from these other facets of things. Rather than physically giving up something, give up something that hurts us spiritually. Well, you know, that's, that's a great thing, and, 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 and those two categories aren't mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, if we're giving up something physically, it will often be a reminder of the spiritual struggle that we're, we're, we're striving for, too. We should at least do one, you know, one of those, those things, but, but we should always be working to give up those habits that are really, really destructive for us. Um, sometimes we're much more concerned about um, our, our bad dietary habits you know, watching our cholesterol or, all, or our mm-hmm. salt intake or whatever the latest fad is, I can't seem to keep track of mm. track yeah. of them all. Well, me too. Uh, but 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 um, but yes, giving up gossip, uh, giving up um, visiting certain websites that just spoil our attitude—that's mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. another thing. Uh, all of these different things that we know are not good for us, but we find ourselves drawn to them for one reason or another. Uh, Lent is a great time to modify those behaviors and to, uh, to, to, to consider certain intentions um, that we can attach to our sacrifices. And we know I, that our Lord's sacrifice was redemptive. I think, Mike, probably what I need to do, too, and I really mean this, is probably stop being so self-righteous for my own part, because when I kind of mockingly say that people shouldn't be giving up chocolate, I think for a lot of people, just giving up something, these are the baby steps of spirituality, and there's a grace that accompanies those type of sacrifices. And for me, who may have stopped doing that years ago and maybe have grown, it's only because of those beginning baby steps. So, I mean, it it really kind of is self-righteous for me to look at others and say, well, you're not doing enough, or that's not enough. But but we're all at different stages, and and we all need to to kind of calibrate where we are. You do bring up a great point that... That uh, that giving up chocolate might not make make a lot of sense for you at this point in your life, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of people out there who are listening who really should be turning up the heat a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, they should be striving to go up the next step in the spiritual ladder. So maybe they want to go a little bit beyond what they did last year. And if they gave up chocolate last year and they 
succeeded in that struggle? Well, maybe this year it's chocolate and something else. Right. <laughs> chocolate and other sweets or, or whatever it might be. Um, but there are lots of, um, lots of different ways to do it. And, um, and the important thing is to do it and to enter into the spirit of the season. Uh, uh, again, Lent, all of the practices of Lent are not ends in themselves. Uh, when people look at them that way, they just lead to pride. I did it. You know, I mm-hmm. lost 12 pounds or whatever whatever the outcome might be, or I, I showed that I could stick with this routine. Well, no, that's not the point. We're, we're emptying ourselves to make room for the Spirit. Oh, and yeah. to be able to stick with uh, fast, to be able to persevere, that really you need to be praying. Sure, sure, uh, because, because it's funny. Even if, if you take on something that you think, well, I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've shown that I can do it in, in smaller periods of time. Well, it's funny how, how after a week or two, it suddenly becomes the focus of your attention, you know, yeah. and you have that nagging sense, well, I really could use a, a piece of chocolate, and I should reward myself for going this long without it. Yeah. So it, it is funny the way, the way the psychology of fasting works, but if you stick with it, the rewards are greater. And in those temptations, too, it's not only ourselves and the world tempting us, but you really do need to brace yourself for the evil spirits that will try to tempt you into doing and not allowing this growth to occur in you. That's right. Uh, the, the devil hates fasting. He, he, he loves it when we indulge ourselves. He hates it when we deny ourselves. And, uh, and, and I think that, um, that, that that's going to be part of our temptation, just as it was part of Jesus' temptation during his 40 days in the desert. The devil tempted him three times, offering him all kinds of things to break his fast, turn the stones into bread. And that's why a lot of the prayer that we see in our parishes and in our own lives during Lent is so important, because we have things, when we look at temptation, we look at the Stations of the Cross, or when we go to Reconciliation. It's all those things to strengthen us, so that we can continue on in this, in that pursuit of the fast. That's right, and and that's that's another great point because prayer is is the first mark of Lent. It's that that the, it's it's really the all encompassing one because we take on fasting and almsgiving as forms of prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, fasting is not dieting, mm-hmm. and almsgiving is not philanthropy. Right. right. Those two things are forms of prayer, and if they're not, then we're not living them as marks of Lent. So the primary one is prayer, Chris, just as you said, that, that there are these special ways of prayer that we can take on and we should take on and we should take advantage of the things that are going on in our parishes during Lent because this is the big push in many parishes is to bring people into a deeper and richer spiritual life during the 40 days of Lent. Right. Mike, let's talk a little bit about almsgiving. I think that uh, people sometimes get a, a little confused by you know what that might be about. What are the, some of the dimensions of almsgiving that we should be considering as we move into uh, the Lenten season now? Well, one of the interesting things about, about almsgiving is that, um, is that, is that almsgiving really uh, wor- works to... Um, almsgiving really is all three of the marks. Yeah. Because, again, it's a form of prayer. It's not just philanthropy. It's giving of oneself to God, and it's giving sacrificially. It's giving sacrificially. So it really, almsgiving is a form of fasting. So we find the two previous marks incorporated in prayer, in, in, in almsgiving. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that in the only place in the Scripture where the three marks of Lent are discussed, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, mm-hmm. there's only one place in Scripture. And, and, and 
and it places almsgiving at the pinnacle. Here, here's, what it, here's what it says in the book of Tobit. Prayer and fasting are good, but better than either is almsgiving com- accompanied by righteousness. It is better to give alms than to store up gold, for almsgiving saves one from death and expiates every sin. Those who regularly give alms shall enjoy a full life. And we all know where that life will be. It will be with Christ. And mm-hmm. that's what Lent is preparing us to do. Almsgiving is an important part of Lent, and it may be the most, the most neglected of the three marks of Lent, but we should be giving those little rice bowls that they, they gave us when we were, um, when we were in grade school yeah. are, are, a great, are a great sign. And, uh, and, and it, it, it won't hurt us to, uh, to have our own version of that as we, um, we live our adult lives. When I think of almsgiving, I remember a passage that I read in a book once that we have uh, a lot of times when people give to charities of their treasure, that charity isn't giving your leftovers. Charity is giving part of where it hurts. I mean, part of who you are. It's not giving your leftovers. That's philanthropy. Right. I have a good friend who's who's been who's been tithing now. He he made the decision to tithe back in 1939, and he's he had uh, he had I think he has nine kids. Wow. nine kids over the course of his. Uh, of course, they're all grown now. He's got grandchildren and great grandchildren. Mm-hmm. But he said that um, you know he was working as a, as an engineer in American industry through all the ups and downs of the of the 50s and the 70s and the uh, the, the even into the 90s. He was he was there for all the ups and downs, you know, getting laid off. But he said he decided, all, you know, just to stick with it. And mm-hmm. uh, and it, he said it was a matter of trusting God. He said, and he learned that God will not be outdone in generosity, because because he gave and God gave back to him very richly down through the decades and gave gave to his family. Uh, he always found his way out of the tough times, but he always gave God the tithe. Um, which is ten percent. Now, there's there's nothing sacred about the tithe, um, and and uh, and we shouldn't feel bound by that. But we should give sacrificially, as you said, Bruce. And um, and that's that's really what what Christian almsgiving is all about. You know, it, it's it, it's interesting. Sometimes we don't have anything to give, and mm-hmm. and I brought back that deathbed example before, but we can even give alms then. You know, when we think about the people who are with us, the people who are in our lives at the moment, the healthcare professionals or whatever, and uh, and what we can give them right now to make their lives richer. And I remember hearing this this story about about a man who um who was dying of of cancer, and he had a, a nurse visiting him all the time, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, every day would come in and, and give him medications and that sort of thing, and. And one time he was um, he was with his his son, and uh, and he said, "Well, I've got to start preparing for for when when the nurse comes." And the son said, "Well, how do, how do you have to prepare?" And he said, "I have to start smiling now mm. because it makes all the difference in her day if her patients are smiling." And, and you know, to think that he was giving a smile as his alms when probably the last thing he felt like doing was smiling. Mm-hmm. Now that's almsgiving. That's sacrificial almsgiving, when it takes you a half hour to prepare to smile for somebody just because you know it's going to make their day better. Well, we can do that. Anybody can do that, even if we're down on our luck, even if we're out of money. We can always smile for someone else when we don't feel like smiling just to brighten their day. There's always something we can give. 
that's true of almsgiving. It's that sacrifice of yourself. And when we talk about even when it hurts, it may be a parent who will forego a training session at work to be able to be there that weekend with their kids. That's right. That's right. It's foregoing those possibilities of advancement, maybe, right now, thinking, well, I'll have to get to that a little bit later on because I want to be there for my, for my child. There, there are all different ways that we can live that Christian poverty that's mm-hmm. just a natural part of our lives. Um, you know, we don't have to enter a religious order to, to make a vow of poverty in order to live poverty. We're all supposed to be living that way. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, and we've got to find out what that means in, in our particular lives. And I just keep going back to all of this. I mean, either fasting or almsgiving, it takes work. I mean, it's the work of the Christian. That's but right. you can be sustained by prayer. And that's there's such a richness that we are given that once, if you really enter into it, you'll find that you won't want to stop when Lent is over. A- absolutely. We, we should look upon these things that are hallowed by tradition and look upon them as the democracy of the dead. This is what the ages have given us. You know, history is really a refiner's fire, and what comes down to us is usually the stuff that's been purified and distilled. It's the wisdom of the ages. And so we should look upon all these traditions not as hidebound tradition, mm-hmm. or, you know, as a dusty old, you know, museum piece. You know, that's not it. Mm-hmm. We have these things today, these things of great antiquity, because they're things of great beauty. And there are things that have been proven successful through centuries of canonized saints who, who we know have made it to heaven, and we want to follow them to heaven. And these are the proven paths to get there. It's like a map you mm-hmm. know, through the life, through Christian life, and it's a map that gives us a clear route, you know, not like some of these, these things that you get on, on MapQuest where, <laughs> where, yeah. where, where it, it, it's reading a bridge as an intersection or something like right. that. Yeah. These are the maps that are sure because they're, they're hallowed by tradition and they're, they're confirmed by the Church. So if we're faithful to, to our ancestors in these ways and to the traditions of, of, our, of our fathers, then, uh, then all will be well with us. Right. And there's, of course, a, a lot of great devotions. I mean, I, I know people that, uh, I, th- I think traditionally at Lent, we kind of gear up to do the Stations of the Cross and everything else, but I know people that make that a part of their prayer life year-round, uh, you know, much like they would a daily rosary or everything else. So uh, I think it's very important to pay attention to those devotions, you know, in Lent, but, but let that spread even beyond the, that particular season. Oh, I, I think I think you're absolutely right, and, and and you know throughout history the church has observed the Fridays of the year as kind of a little Lent, really. Right. Mm-hmm. For um, for much of history, Fridays have been traditionally meatless days, and uh, and even at different periods of history they were all days of fasting to remember the crucifixion. And I know that in my parish, if you uh, if you go to mass on a Friday, there are always going to be some people who stay there after mass is over and walk the stations of the cross. Mm-hmm. One of one of the priests of our diocese uh, died recently. He was almost a hundred years old, mm. and I know that as long as he could walk, he was walking the stations of the cross every every morning. And uh, and and there's something great in that because it it just keeps us there, and it reminds us always of the cost of our redemption. Uh, I would wager that people people who walk the stations of the cross at least on Fridays but especially those who walk the Stations of the Cross on every day, like that priest, are much less likely to sin. 
during the course of the day yeah. because mm-hmm. they know that the, they know what that sin brought on in someone they love dearly. I found this just for myself, Mike. It's kind of a personal thing that I'm sharing with the audience, but try to go to reconciliation early in Lent because what's going to if you if you don't take the opportunity to receive reconciliation on a regular basis throughout the year. Because what I found a couple years ago that when I did it early in Lent, I found myself by midway through Lent, well, I needed to go back again. I mean, I felt like called. And so, and then I went back again. And then I found that why am I not doing this all the time? (laughs) Because it's such a gift. You know, it's funny. My wife pointed that out when she was a a recent convert that, that for the for the first uh, the first couple of years, confession was the was the really tough thing for her because mm-hmm. so so out of uh, apart from her experience, you know, nothing in her experience had really really prepared her for this. And she used to go once a year during con- during Lent, <laughs> and mm-hmm. she said she found it really hard to go to confession. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, you're, I mean, you're 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 looking back on a year, and it's a really hard thing. But then once she started, she made the decision at some point to start going once a month, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then confession got very easy for her, and she said even very rewarding, because a month is manageable. A right. year just is not, and a year is intimidating. And, and when you're confessing a year's worth of, uh, of, of you know, whatever your, your particular struggle is, it can be, be a demoralizing thing. Um, it, you know, it shouldn't be, because right. we're getting great graces even for that minimum that the Church asks. But but we should go more often. And if we go a couple of times, at least during Lent, it can be a great thing for our spiritual life, and it could um, really ramp us up into regular confession throughout the year. I just say, just try it. I mean, just this year, make a commitment to go try it a couple times. I mean, you'll see, you'll experience something that's just extraordinary. Absolutely. You know, St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century referred to Lent as the time of confession. And if, if people do what you say, Chris, they're going to be living that time of confession in an intense way, and you can bet that the graces are going to be intense, too. Once you do that, I absolutely guarantee you that, but when Easter comes and that resurrection, I don't know how to quantitatively tell you how, to, how you're going to feel, but for me, you just experience Easter in it just such a beautiful way. Again, we can we can do all that we we humanly can to empty ourselves, and it will be a good thing. But but that's only a small portion of what God, what Almighty God can do. God who created us and redeemed us, He wants to sanctify us by with the same power that He used to create us and redeem us. So so that 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 enormous grace that we get through the sacramental means of confession will will. will do so much more than we could ever dream of doing by human means, even though the human means are necessary. He wants us to make the effort, but just imagine what his effort will be if we're faithful to that. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, Mike, we, we keep battling the clock in this business, and uh, unfortunately, Mr. Clock says, uh, any final thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> it goes by so quickly. Yes, it does. I, I don't know. Visit my blog. I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be posting a three-part series on uh that's kind of an intro to lent on prayer fasting and almsgiving and i'll 
I'll put up some material there from the fathers as well, especially that material from Benedict on being joyful through Lent. But my blog, of course, is fathersofthechurch.com, fathersofthechurch.com. Oh, you'll have lots of hits from the Omaha Archdiocese and all <laughs> in the surrounding area. Wonderful. Well, Mike, as always, a pleasure. Thanks. God bless. Uh, this is just a special time that uh, we and our audience get to spend with you, and, and we're deeply grateful for it. I love the company. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I just have to say one last thing, Mike. There is just when we talk about these things like fasting and almsgiving, you have such a joyful way that you say it in charity that mm-hmm. it, I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. Bring it on. Give me some fasting. The Father's spirit is infectious this way. (laughs) It truly is. All right. Well, uh, you're all infected out there, so (laughs) go forth and enjoy Lent. In a healthy way. Yes. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.